Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to be this morning. We are wrapping up our series called The Gathering. So for the past uh, four weeks, now this is the fifth week, we've been going over what do we do when we gather? What does the Bible talk about and what does the Bible speak to uh, about our gatherings? When we come together, especially on Sunday mornings, what is it that we're supposed to do? So we talked initially about fellowship, that our, our gatherings are supposed to be marked by fellowship. So we fellowship with one another, we have times of fellowship, but on top of that, the whole gathering uh, as, as a whole is supposed to be marked by fellowship. We talked about the music that we sing with emotion and joy and truth to the Lord, and we, we proclaim those truths to Him, and we proclaim them to one another, reminding each other of the beautiful things that we sing, especially uh, this morning, some of the great gospel truths that we have proclaimed this morning. We then talked about prayer, and we gather together, and we pray big prayers together to see God move in a mighty way in and through our church and around the world. We talked last week about the sermons, how we gather together to, to open up God's word, to discuss what it means for our lives, because God's word is valuable for us. Uh, and it is uh, impactful for us. It will shape and mold us in the image of Jesus. This morning, we're going to talk about the final thing that the Bible speaks to for our gatherings together, and that's the Lord's Supper. Uh, probably one of the most forgotten, uh, one of the most... Uh, underutilized aspects of our gatherings, especially uh, in churches today. But, uh, but that's what we're going to talk about this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, says this. Uh, this is Paul speaking to the Corinthian church, which has a lot of problems. And uh, Paul is talking to them in verse 17. It says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another goes drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself." That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the text this morning. Holy Father, I thank you for your word. 
that your word does speak to our gatherings, that your, your word does instruct us and guide us for what we, we are supposed to be about, the things that we're supposed to do when we're together. Father, I thank you for the Lord's Supper and what it means and what it represents. Father, I pray that this morning we would have a renewed joy in the gospel. That this morning you would, you would bring to our mind the, the beauty of the, the death of Jesus for our sake. You would bring to our mind the, the glory of the resurrection of Christ and how we can have forgiveness of our sins in Jesus. God, bring these things to mind and give us a joy in the gospel as we talk about the Lord's Supper and as we participate in and partake in the Lord's Supper. God, I pray that we would be overjoyed and overfilled with love for you because of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would shape and mold us in the image of Jesus. The things that we need to change in our thinking, the things that we need to change in our actions, God, I pray that you would point those out, you would shape and mold us so that we would look more like Jesus as a church. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. And the Lord's Supper, as I mentioned uh, earlier, is probably one of the, the most neglected or forgotten aspects of the gathering when it comes to Christian churches. So, uh, that's a pretty new phenomenon. For most of church history, the Lord's Supper was, was a, an incredibly important part of the gathering. In fact, for most of church history, uh, the, the, the table for the Lord's Supper was front and center in churches. So it was thought of as the most important aspect of the gathering. There's, there are different reasons for that, and there are reasons why we moved to the pulpit front and center and moved the table off to the side. But, um, but for uh, historically, the, the Lord's Supper has played a huge part in the churches. But what we have talked about several times over the last few weeks, is that over the last 60 years, there's been a trend in American churches towards consumer mentalities, where for the last 60 years or so, American churches have trended towards being really big on the, a great production, being really big on a great performance. And so the service, the gathering, is what takes place on the stage, and then everybody in the audience just, just, just receives. Right? Everybody in the audience just consumes what happens on the stage. That's what we've trended towards for the last 60 years. And so when you have big performances as a church, you see the music become concerts, you see the sermons become uh, short anecdotes, short storytelling, uh, and comedy routines. Uh, but what do you do with the Lord's Supper? Because the Lord's Supper doesn't really seem to fit very well in a model that talks about uh, the church as consumers and everything up here is, is what is, is the real ministry. Everything up here is the real performance. Where does the Lord's Supper fit into all of that? Because if, you, if you're like me, you know, it's, I mean, it's a little weird, right, that we have these stale wafers for um, the churches I grew up in, uh, where it was always this little square-shaped cracker that was stale and, and tasted like it had been there since the church was built in the 1900s, right? Um, and we, we, uh, we don't have the stale wafers. We have masa, so uh, you're welcome. But uh, we would get that, and then we would get this little shot of grape juice that was just barely enough to, to taste, you know, just enough to, to where you get the aftertaste of grape juice in your mouth, but not enough to actually satisfy you at all, you know, and uh, we do keep that tradition going, so you're welcome. Um, but that was, that's traditionally what we've done, uh, but it's a little weird. How does that fit in? to services that are all consumers? How do we make it work with a church that's so focused on the production? How do we fit that in? So stop me if this sounds familiar. But traditionally, what we've started to do is we have relegated the Lord's Supper to this once, in a, once every now and then event, this big event that takes place once a quarter, maybe twice a year. And it's this big event where, where everyone, the deacons dress up in suits and ties, 
and then it's this big formal procession where we take the, the Lord's Supper plates and we, we parade them around the room. And it's this very somber, almost melancholic moment where everyone's reflecting on things. And it's this very spiritual feeling moment where we pass the cup around, everyone takes it, and they're all kind of in their bubble, just them and God. And then they take the Lord's Supper, right? And it's this very, very spiritual feeling uh, event, right? What... What we've done is we've fit the Lord's Supper into this consumer mentality, and we've said it's really all about you and God. It's really all about you having this great moment with the Lord, this good time of reflection. It's something that we want to do, you know, maybe once a, once a quarter, maybe twice a year, because it's not something we want to do often, because it's not a great part of the performance. And what we've ended up with is the Lord's Supper in churches that does not perfectly and accurately reflect with the Lord's Supper, uh, the teaching on the Lord's Supper in Scripture, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So what I want us to do this morning is to think through the Lord's Supper, why we do it, what we do it for, and what it's supposed to, what it's supposed to symbolize, what it's supposed, what's supposed to happen when we take the Lord's Supper. And this is what I want us to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When we take the Lord's Supper, we take the Lord's Supper in order to proclaim the gospel that unites us. We practice the Lord's Supper to proclaim the gospel that unites us. So I want us to examine those two aspects of that sentence there. When we take the Lord's Supper, two things happen. Number one, the first thing that we do when we take the Lord's Supper is we proclaim the gospel. Look with me in verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper tells a story. It paints a beautiful picture, and it tells a story. I think of, uh, I think of tattoos. Right, when people ask me, uh, What are your thoughts on tattoos? I always say, I'm never going to get one. Uh, but the reason for that is because I hate needles. I can't stand them. And so uh, that's, the, that's the only reason I'm not going to get one. But some of you don't have that aversion to needles. Some of you love tattoos, and that's great. I love talking with people that, that have tattoos because I'm fascinated by them. I love them. Uh, I'm not going to get one because I don't like needles. But, um, but I love talking with them because they mean something to the person that got the tattoo. More often than not, that tattoo tells a story. Right? It usually relates maybe to a loved one. And something that, that happened in their life, someone that meant a lot to them. And, and so they, they, t they tell the story, they paint the picture of that person through the art on their arm or on their body. Or maybe it's an event in their life that had a profound significance to them, and they tell that story with a tattoo. Maybe it's something that means a lot to them, and they paint that picture and tell that story with the artwork um, that they, they placed on them. Or tattoos tell a story. In the same way, the Lord's Supper tells a story. It paints a picture that gives us insight into something that happened. And this is the story that it tells. It takes us all the way back 3,000 years ago when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. The Israelites were working in slavery to the Pharaoh of Egypt, and they were crying out to God, saying, God, rescue us. God, God notice us. Take us out of here. Bring us into the promised land. God, God, rescue us from slavery. They were crying out to God. And so God sent plague after plague after plague on the Egyptians. He sent 
darkness. He sent frogs and gnats. He turned the river to blood. He sent plague after plague after plague on the Egyptians. And the Pharaoh hardened his heart and said, I will not let Israel go. Moses marched into Pharaoh's uh, room, marched into the throne room and said, let my people go. Let the Israelites leave. And again uh, and again and again, Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go. Finally, God told Moses, he said, there's going to be one last plague. And God sent an angel to Egypt to kill the firstborn son of every person in Egypt. But before he did that, God told Moses that if the Israelites would take a lamb and kill the lamb and take the blood and paint it on the doorpost, that when the angel came into Egypt, he would see the blood on the doorpost and he would pass over that house. And he wouldn't kill any, anybody in that house. So one night, the Israelites, they killed the lambs. They painted the blood on their doorpost, and they went to sleep. And they heard a great cry that arose in Egypt as people started waking up and finding that their firstborn children were dead. And Egyptian after Egyptian were crying out, but the Israelites were spared. Not one Israelite who painted the doorpost with blood died. The, the angel of death had passed over their houses. And at that moment, the Pharaoh told the Israelites, get out. God had rescued his people from slavery. The Israelites left Egypt. Famously, they walked through this great body of water on dry land after God parted the seas for them. And God brought them into the promised land. But before God brought them into the promised land, God made a covenant with them, a promise. He said, you will be my people and I'm going to be your God. And, and you will re- receive all the blessings that of being the people of God. You're going to be this eternal kingdom of my people. You're going to receive the blessings that pour out from me. You're going to receive my love and my joy. You're going to be at peace. You're going to experience all these amazing things, this Genesis 1 reality. All you have to do is keep all of my laws. All you have to do is earn it. If you follow all of my laws perfectly, if you're righteous, if you're holy, if you are perfect and pure, you're going to be my people for all of eternity, and you're going to experience all the blessings that come from being the people of God. The problem with that, and there's this problem that plays out throughout the entire Old Testament, is that Israel couldn't keep the, the, the law of God. Israel could not check those boxes because the Israelites were broken, sinful people. In the same way that you and I are all broken, sinful people. None of us are perfect. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us is righteous. Not one of us are perfect. We are all broken, sinful people. The Israelites were no different. And so when God laid out his law for them and said, all you have to do is be perfect to earn my love, not one of them could do it. Not one of them could earn the right to be the people of God. And so God kicked them out of the land. And eventually they were brought back to the land, but they were under Persian rule, and then they were under Roman rule. And so God had had kicked his people out because not one of them could check the box and could earn his favor and could earn his love and could earn the right to be his people. And if that's the standard to be the people of God, if that's the standard to get to heaven is to be perfect, to check off all the boxes, to follow God's law, entirely, then we're in trouble. Because the Israelites couldn't do it, and you and I can't do it. We have all 
sinned against God. We have all rebelled against him. And so none of us have earned the right to call ourselves the people of God. None of, else, none of us has, has earned an entrance ticket into heaven, has earned entrance into the kingdom of God. Not one of us has earned the right to be called children of God because we have all rebelled against him. We are all imperfect people. But God wasn't okay with that. See, God loved us enough to save us. God loved us enough to rescue us even though we rebelled against him. Even though we were sinful, broken people that that ignored his law, that did what we wanted, that failed to give him the glory and the honor that he's due, that failed to worship him, even though we were rebels, he still loved us enough to save us. What he decided to do is that he himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, came to earth And he added humanity to his deity about 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ entered the world. And he lived a perfect life. He did the one thing you and I could never do. He followed all of God's laws perfectly. He earned the right to be called the people of God because he was perfect. Because he was righteous. Because he was holy. For about three years, beginning at the age of 30, he began to perform miracles and have this public ministry where he was, he was performing miracles, he, was, he, was raising, uh, he raised the dead on a few cases, he, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, uh, he did all of these incredible, mighty works. He had this amazing ministry going on uh, throughout Judea, and he had these disciples that he was pouring into. He was teaching uh, a bunch of people, he was teaching large crowds, he was teaching these disciples, uh, and specifically he was teaching these 12 disciples that he was really pouring into and really leading. And after about three years of ministry... On Passover week, the week that the Israelites held a feast and a celebration in order to celebrate that day back in Israel, uh, that day back in Egypt when the angel of God passed over and saved them, in order to celebrate that week, uh, on Passover week, Jesus decided he was going to go to Jerusalem. So on the Sunday of that week, Jesus entered Jerusalem, and it's what we call Palm Sunday. It's what we are celebrating today, is that when Jesus decided to go into Jerusalem, people threw down palms, they, they threw down uh, shirts, they, they celebrated Jesus as he entered Jerusalem, and they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, they were treating him like a king. Again, this is a guy who had performed miracles, this is a guy who had healed the sick, this is a guy who had cast out demons, so they are treating this Jesus like a king when he enters Jerusalem, but he knows Jesus knows that it's not going to last. And on the Friday of that week, just five days later, he's betrayed by one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot handed Jesus over to the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. And religious leaders had this sham of a trial where they tried to paint him as a heretic. They were... They were proclaiming that he was heretical because he said he was the son of God, which was true. They were saying he was heretical because he said he was a king, which is true. Like, so they, they painted this picture of him. They, they labeled him a heretic, and they threw him before the Roman authorities, and this great crowd of people said, crucify Jesus. Kill him. The same crowd that cried Hosanna cried, crucify him, crucify him, kill this Jesus. And you know what Jesus did? He just went along with it. 
They didn't recognize that they were crying, crucify him, about the Son of God. The only perfect person to ever live. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. They are shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. And he just went along with it. In any second, at any moment, Jesus could have called down the angels of heaven and done away with the situation and rescued himself. But he didn't. He went along with it. He allowed the Roman authorities to take him and to whip him until the flesh on his back had been ripped out and his blood poured onto the ground. He allowed the Roman authorities to humiliate him, to force him to carry this heavy wooden cross through the streets. He allowed the Roman authorities to drive nails into his wrists and nails into his feet as they hung him up on a cross to die. Jesus cried out to the Father, As his blood poured to the ground, he let out his last breath and he died. The night before, the night before all of this took place on Friday, Jesus gathered in a room with his disciples to have this last meal with them. He knew what was about to happen and he wanted to prepare his disciples and let them know what was going to go on. So when they gather in this room, Jesus takes a piece of bread And he breaks the bread and he gives it to them. He says, this is my body, broken for you. Jesus takes a a thing of wine and he pours out the wine. He says, this wine that is poured out is the new covenant made in my blood, which is poured out for you. The reason that Jesus went through all of that, the reason he allowed himself to be tortured and tormented and humiliated and killed It's because he decided that he wanted to save us from our sins. Notice what he says with the blood, that it is poured out as a new covenant enacted by his blood. The old covenant was the one that said, you have to be perfect to earn the love of God. The old covenant is the one that none of us could satisfy. The old covenant is the one that none of us could earn. We could not be perfect. And so Jesus said, I'm doing away with the old covenant and I'm making a new covenant in my blood. And on that day, Jesus acted like the Passover lamb. His blood was poured out so that we could, by faith in Jesus, have his blood cover over us, and instead of having the wrath of God and the anger of God, instead of spending forever separated from God in hell, instead the wrath of God will pass over us, and we will be deemed righteous by God because the blood of Jesus, the righteous Holy One, covers over us. That's the story that's told by the the Lord's Supper. That the body of Jesus was broken for us. That we have salvation because Jesus allowed his body to be broken. That the blood of Christ was poured out for us. That we have a new covenant where we can have a right relationship with God. Where we can have a restored relationship with him. Where we can be deemed and called righteous by God if we have faith in Jesus because of the blood that was poured out for us on the cross. The story that is told by the Lord's Supper is the glorious good news that there is salvation because Jesus gave up his life for us on the cross. That's why he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the gospel. That there's a life that is found in the death of Jesus. That there's forgiveness of sins found in his blood. That there's hope found in Christ. When we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the gospel. That's why we believe the Lord's Supper is a symbol. We see in verse 24, do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, do this in remembrance of me. What the Lord's Supper is, is a symbol that, that tells the story of the gospel. We don't believe that the, the Lord's Supper becomes Jesus, that it uh, has any special super spiritual significance in the elements, but that they are symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus. The idea that it uh, somehow becomes Jesus usually comes in a, a, a very literal rendering of the phrase, this is my body and this is my blood, but Jesus, I think, pretty clearly uh, didn't mean it literally. Uh, even on the Last Supper, when he broke the bread, when he poured the wine, it was uh, clearly metaphorical that th this is his body, this is his blood, because as they ate the bread, as they drank the wine, the, Jesus was right in front of them. He was fine. Like it, it didn't, none, none of his body left. Um, so he's using a metaphor. It's a symbolism. It says, this is my body. This is my blood. And the Lord's Supper is this beautiful symbol of the gospel, the hope that is found in Jesus. When we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the gospel. That's why we also believe that uh, the Lord's Supper should be taken by those who are Christians, by those who have placed their faith in Jesus, because you can't participate in, you can't partake of something that you have never experienced yourself. You can't proclaim and participate and enjoy something that you've never enjoyed in the first place. If you, you can't enjoy the symbol if you've never enjoyed salvation from Jesus. Just one chapter early in 1 Corinthians 10, it says when we take the Lord's Supper, we participate in the body and the blood of Jesus. What that shows is that we have a, a spiritual significance there where there's something unique about just the reminder for ourselves that we've been set free by, by, the, death and by, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we've been set free by the body and blood of Jesus. And so that unique reminder, that unique significance can't happen if you've never placed your faith in Jesus. When we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the gospel. Now, if you're like me, you're probably wondering, why this? Right? Why do we have the Lord's Supper at all? We can proclaim the gospel any number of ways. Like when I go out into the world and I share the gospel with people, I usually don't bring them bread and wine and say, take these. You know, like I, I usually talk and just share the gospel, right? So why do we have this symbolism? Why do we have to go through this whole practice and this ritual and this this unique way. Why did Jesus set this up in the first place? We have this established. Why is it? Well, I go back to my biology class, freshman year of high school. I didn't take biology in college, uh, and you're going to find out uh, why soon. But I didn't, I didn't take it uh, because you have to do dissections in high school. <laughs> you have to dissect animals uh, and, and open them up and look at the organs and look at what's going on on the inside. Right? And I uh, do not like that. <laughs> I get, I'm really queasy. Uh, I almost passed out when we did it the first time. Uh, the, the, we were dissecting a rat person next to us, cut it open, it started leaking blue goo. Right? And so I was like, I, I walked to the front of the room and sat down and almost passed out. It was great. Uh, but anyways, you have to dissect animals in uh, high school, and the reason you have to dissect animals is because you're taught on a PowerPoint about 
all of the, the organs, about all the things that are going on inside of the body. But it's one thing to see it. It's one thing to, to hear it and to have it up here. But you and I are embodied creatures. Right? We don't exist in our head. We exist out in the world. The world of, of physical things, the world of life. Like We exist out here. And so when you, there's something unique about cutting open the body and seeing it and experiencing it out here in the world that impacts your learning in a way that, that just hearing it doesn't. And so what we have in the Lord's Supper is this beautiful, tactile experience that reminds us of the gospel in a way that just hearing it doesn't. It's a beautiful way for us to, to participate in the eternal life that comes from Jesus in a way that just hearing it doesn't bring to mind. We proclaim the Lord, when we take of the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the gospel in a very unique and wonderful way. The second thing that we do when we take the Lord's Supper is we confirm our unity. We confirm our unity. Paul, in the beginning part, starting in verse 17, Paul uh, was talking to the Corinthian church, and they had a big problem with the way that they took the Lord's Supper. Because what would happen is they would come together, and they would have this meal. It was almost like a potluck thing. They would have a meal, and those who had food, those who had money and could eat and could bring the food, they were the ones that would eat a lot of food to the point where they were getting drunk. And those who didn't have any money wouldn't eat any food, and they weren't able to take of the Lord's Supper. And so they were dividing along these socioeconomic lines where those who, who have money are able to take of the Lord's Supper and eat it in abundance, and those who don't have money weren't able to take the Lord's Supper at all. So Paul reminds them of what the Lord's Supper does, that it proclaims the gospel, and he says in verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. We are proclaiming the gospel when we take the Lord's Supper, so we need to make sure we're proclaiming the gospel correctly. We need to make sure we are, we are saying what is right and true about Jesus when we take the Lord's Supper. What is it that the, the Corinthian church was proclaiming? They were proclaiming that the more money you have, the more Jesus you get. They were proclaiming that it's the rich people who get to experience the life that comes from the death and resurrection of Jesus. And those who are poor don't get to participate. They were doing it in a disunified, unholy manner. This unworthy manner in verse 27, we, we usually take that in our world because we've, we have set up a Lord's Supper that is us in a bubble, just me and the Lord. We usually take that as, as I need to make sure that I'm right before God before I take this. But the reality is, you're right before God because of Jesus. If you've placed your faith in him, you are righteous in the eyes of God. And if you're just trying to figure out if you're doing things well in order to earn the ability to take the Lord's Supper, you will never be there. <laughs> right? If you're looking at your own ability to make yourself righteous, to make yourself holy, in order to earn the right to participate in the Lord's table, you will never achieve that. You are righteous because of Jesus. The unworthy manner is not this, this me and God mentality, the unworthy manner that Paul is talking about in context is taking it in a way that is disunifying and telling a lie about Jesus in the gospel. He says, if you eat it in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Jesus. And it's a big deal. That's why in verse 30, he says, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. The church is proclaiming a lie about Jesus through the Lord's Supper, and God is taking care of that. 
God takes that very seriously, and so he's causing some of them to get sick, and in fact, he's, he's taking some of them out. Because it's very serious to him to proclaim the truth about the gospel through the Lord's Supper. It says in verse 31, uh, excuse me, verse 30, so, 33, So then, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. What Paul is proclaiming is that when you come together to take the Lord's Supper, do it in unity with one another. Because this is what the Lord's Supper does. It forces us to recognize that you and I are all on the same level before God. That you and I are all uh, e have equal standing because of Jesus. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter where you grew up. None of those things matter you and I are all equal in the eyes of God and have equal standing because of Jesus. We are all sinners, set free and redeemed by the body and the blood of Jesus. So when we take the Lord's Supper, we confirm our unity. The Lord's Supper is not this somber, reflective moment like a funeral. And the Lord's Supper is meant to be this celebration that, that you and I have been set free from sin and death by Jesus. That we are all celebrating the fact that, that we have been resurrected, that we have been made new, that we've been forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. It's, it's a party, a celebration. And when we take it, we confirm our unity with one another. We confirm the fact that we are brought together by Jesus. I think of uh, Mr. Rogers, famous uh, kids' TV show for decades. And in 1969, uh, you know, culturally everything going on in 1969, even though the Civil Rights Act had already passed, um, there were a lot of things that were still segregated in 1969. And one of the things that, was still, that were still segregated in 69 were public pools in a lot of places. 